2,500 years ago, international affairs were centred on the same region as they are today. On an empire that not only encompassed modern Iraq, but also stretched in today's Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. In the capital city, not Baghdad but further south, Babylon, an 82-year-old man sat reading a scroll. Although only second to the king, Belteshazzar was a foreigner, far from his home which he had left almost 70 years before. I say had left, but had been taken would be more accurate. As a teenager, Daniel, for that was his native name, had been seized and carried into exile by the invading Babylonian army, which had marched into his home city of Jerusalem. Others had not been so fortunate. Thousands had been brutalized, mutilated, enslaved or killed in the years that followed, until the city of Jerusalem, its temple and walls, were reduced to rubble. Many of Daniel's people believed that such a thing would not, and indeed could not, happen. Despite the overwhelming odds stacked against them, far greater than those against Iraq by the coalition forces today, the people of Israel clung to one hope, that they were God's chosen people, and Jerusalem was God's chosen city. And as had happened before in similar circumstances in their past history, the Lord God would intervene and rescue them and defeat their enemies. Just a few brave souls dared to defy this theological orthodoxy and to declare instead that defeat was inevitable because the people of Israel had broken the covenant the Lord their God had made with them. Among them was a prophet named Jeremiah who not only proclaimed the word of the Lord but ensured that it was written down as a record and as future evidence. And this message was communicated to the people of Israel and then sent to the exiles in Babylon. And it was this record that the elderly Daniel sat reading almost 70 years later. This is what he read. Listen carefully. It's in our Bible in Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters, increase in number there, do not decrease, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they encourage you to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Subsequent history proved which was truth and which was lies. Why now there were only a few like Daniel who had ever stood within the walls of Jerusalem. Most of the people of Israel in Babylon had been born and raised there. Babylon was all most of them had known. 
the elderly man read on. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will come to me and pray to me and I will listen to me. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found of you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from the place from which I carried you into exile. Suddenly, the words stood out in sharp relief on the page. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and will fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Why, thought Daniel, 70 years. It's almost here. A year or two at the most. And yet the prospect of the Jews ever returning home seemed as unlikely as ever. Despite the fact that the Babylonian dynasty had been overthrown, as Daniel had seen in a prophecy many years before, by that of the Medes and Persians, the new rulers seemed no more sympathetic or even interested in the people of Israel. Yet the word of the Lord was unambiguous and specific. When 70 years are completed. So, what was Daniel to do? <clears throat> what would you have done in such a circumstance? Or to bring it into the present, what do you do in such circumstances? If you are a Christian, if you believe that this book is God's Word, how do you reconcile what you read in its pages and what it promises and says about the future in particular with what you read in your newspaper. Some Christians separate the two out and see little or no connection at all. But if, like Daniel, we take this book seriously as God's Word, then it will always create a tension or conflict between what it says and what the newspapers say and what the television says and what the media declares. In his excellent little book, now I think out of print, sadly, People in Prayer, from which we borrowed the title of our series, John White comments, No conflict would have arisen had Daniel taken Scripture lightly or lacked a concern for his people. And it may be that the lack of agonised appeals to God from the church of the 20th century, now 21st, indicates our lack of inner conflict. The Word is the Word, the newspapers are the newspapers, and never the twain do meet, in our souls at least. Notice also that Daniel did not settle for what many of us, I suspect, do with an appeal to the sovereignty of God. He didn't say, well, this is what the Bible says, this is what God's Word says, so it's going to happen anyway, and I'll just relax and retreat behind the barricades and wait for it, and sing a few verses of God moves in a mysterious way. 
No. And here is the point. Daniel's conflict and his belief not only in divine sovereignty, but in human responsibility, drove him to prayer. And not casual prayer, formal prayer, or even his regular three times a day prayer. But serious, impassioned prayer as he wrestled with the issue, seeking from God some resolution to this conflict between what John White calls the Word and the world. And so in our series, People in Prayer, we turn to Daniel this morning, interceding with the Lord. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 9, and let's hear what Daniel prayed. I'd be interested to know what you and I would pray in these circumstances. Daniel 9, page 894. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler of the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in sackcloth, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant of love with all who love Him and obey His commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from Your commands and laws. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, You are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far in all the countries where You've scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to You. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against You. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we've rebelled against Him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws He gave us through His servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we've sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around you. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servants. For your sake, O Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. 
O Lord, hear and act for your sake. O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. This is God's word. Now there is something surprising about this prayer. And it is this. Daniel, in his prayer, doesn't even mention the fulfillment of 70 years. And it is only at the end of the prayer that he gets to anything specific in asking the Lord to intervene. Yet so often when we pray, that is where we begin. At best with what we think God has promised in his word and at worst simply with our request about what we want God to do for us. We start the Lord's Prayer halfway through with give us this day our daily bread and sometimes that is all we pray, forgetting the beginning, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, let her go, let alone forgive us our debts. Not so Daniel. His concern extends beyond the personal and even national and is focused on a much bigger canvas, on the Lord's name and honour. And I'm sure you notice reading this prayer that his focus is on the big problem. Not just the problem of reconciling the word and the world, but the big problem of how do you resolve the chasm between a holy God and a sinful people. Daniel recognises that it is this problem that has got them in the mess they're already in and it is this problem that unless it is resolved will keep them in Babylon forever. And that is the big issue that human beings face and we face today. And I want you to simply this morning in the time remaining to notice two particular aspects that are all sorts of details we don't have time to go into, but I just want to focus on two particular things about this prayer of intercession. As Daniel, as it were, stands in the gap between a holy God and a sinful people. Here is the first thing. First of all, we see Daniel identifying with a guilty people. Identifying with a guilty people. One of, if not the greatest problems in our thinking today is that we have too high a view of ourselves and too low a view of God. Too high a view of ourselves, too low a view of God. The result is that we minimise or rationalise our failings. As I'm used to receive this week an email headed political correctness for today's students. Most students are down at the moment so we can smile on their behalf. This is what it says. No one fails a class anymore. He is merely passing impaired. You don't have detention. You're just one of the exit delayed. These days, a student isn't lazy. He's energetically declined. Your homework isn't missing. It's having an out-of-notebook experience. You're not being sent to the head teacher's office. You're going on a mandatory field trip to the administrative complex. Not only do we excuse our failings, we often blame others and even blame God. A tactic as old as Adam, who in the Garden of Eden, when confronted by the Lord with his sin, said, the woman you put, me, you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruits 
and I ate it. Genesis 3, verse 12. Not so Daniel. In his commentary, Sinclair Ferguson writes, Daniel's prayer magnifies God and humbles himself. And that is the whole of Daniel's prayer. He is focusing on the failings of God's people. It is a prayer of confession. The people of Israel have broken the covenant or agreement that God made with them. They have not kept their side of the bargain. We can summarize what he says as follows. He says, we are to blame, nobody else. We had adequate warning of the terms and conditions of the covenant, written in God's word, the law of Moses, and we fully deserved our fate to be sent into exile. And yet, 70 years on, Daniel recognizes that the people have not changed their ways. We are to blame, yet we have still not owned up. We were warned, yet we still have not paid any attention and obeyed. We deserved our fate, yet we have still not sought the Lord. Now, given this sad state of affairs, what is remarkable about Daniel's prayer is that it is expressed in the first person plural. We, not I, or they. You see, Daniel is rightly regarded in the Bible and in fact in extra-biblical sources as being one of the most righteous, upright men of integrity who ever lived. He's a man of uncompromising loyalty to the Lord, despite what everybody else thinks. He's prepared to be thrown into a den of lions for the sake of worshipping the Lord his God. He's a man who knew the Lord, to whom the Lord revealed the future. So we feel that Daniel surely would have been justified in praying, they have sinned and done wrong. They have been wicked. They have rebelled. And he could have even said, whereas, Lord, I have been righteous and faithful. But he does neither of these things. He identifies with the sin of a guilty people. And this is an essential characteristic if you're going to be an intercessor. An intercessor does not pray, have mercy on them, O Lord. He says, have mercy on us, O Lord. Now, we may object and say, but hang on a moment, we're good evangelicals. We have not sinned as other people have. We have not departed from the faith like other Christians who bear the name of Christ. Now, besides this being very close to the prayer of the Pharisee, it also ignores another truth, that we are part of Christ's body, his church. We are not just individuals. We belong by grace to God's people. And so together we share a corporate responsibility, not only for what we have done and are, but what we have failed to do and what we have failed to be. Let me put it in practical terms. Do you think that the church in our land, in Scotland, is functioning and living as the Lord Jesus Christ intended? Can the corruption and darkness that is so evident in our society be laid simply at the door of human depravity or demonic activity? Or is it also, perhaps largely, because we have failed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, as the Lord Jesus Christ intended? Now, your answer to that question will determine whether or not you pray or simply give up in despair. And if you pray it will determine how and what you pray. 
whether you pray casually, passively, occasionally, or earnestly, persistently, actively, agonizingly, standing with Daniel in the gap, as it were. And Daniel is saying, in effect, this is the sad state of the people of God, and if nobody else will pray, I will. It does not take us, several emails have told me recently, a million people, Christians, signing up so that Saddam Hussein will be removed from power. Jesus said it just takes two or three, or even one, the great tragedy for any society is expressed by the Lord through another exotic prophet, Ezekiel. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. The great need today is for those who will intercede for God's people and intercede with the Lord and recognize the sad state that we're in at the beginning of the 21st century. Now that is the first essential feature of the prayer of intercession. It is identifying with the guilty people. Thankfully it does not stop there. Notice the second thing. Daniel also is seen appealing to a merciful God. As we've seen, Daniel is realistic about the guilt of God's people. Rather than blaming God for what has befallen his people or minimizing his judgment on them, Daniel affirms that God is just and his punishment is fully justified. And he also sees that more and worse will follow unless somehow God's judgment is averted. You see, if we minimize and domesticate God, then we also minimize and domesticate the consequences of sin. It is not love to ignore the reality of God's judgment. If we really believed, as Jesus himself said, that those who do not believe in him are already condemned because they have not believed, it would make a world of difference to what we do and how we pray. If we really believed in hell, we would pray a lot more seriously. Real love must warn And Daniel knows that something is wrong with the people of Israel. God is just. And something is so wrong that unless it is remedied, disaster will follow. God is just, so his judgment will follow. And in order for the people to experience God's promise, which will lead ultimately to restoration, their sin must be forgiven. Their only hope is that God must forgive. God is just, so his judgment will follow unless he intervenes. And that is how he concludes his prayer. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. Verse 19. And yet beyond it all, Daniel has a greater concern. His concern is ultimately for the honour and glory of the name of God. For your sake, O my God, do not delay. Because your city, your people, bear your name. You see, the great tragedy today, the great tragedy is not the state of the church. It's beyond that. It's the state of the church that bears the name of Jesus Christ. And as the world looks on, it is his name that is dishonored. And that should be our greatest concern. 
beyond even our own personal concerns. And so Daniel appeals to God for the honour of his name so that people may know that there is a God in heaven, so that they may know that his Son has come to earth, we would pray today, so that the Holy Spirit might be poured out on God's people. Daniel appeals to God to act and not to delay. That is his prayer. Identifying with the guilty people, appealing to a merciful God. Now, what about the answer? What happened? Was the prayer answered? To find out, you need to read the rest of the chapter and the rest of the Bible, which would take us quite a long time. So let me summarize for your encouragement. Shortly after this prayer, in a matter of months, if not weeks, we can't be sure exactly, but it was within the year anyway, something remarkable happened which took the political pundits of the day completely by surprise. Here is how the Chronicle records it. 2 Chronicles 36. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. And he was a big boss, yeah? The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he's appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem, in Judah. Any one of you among, his, among you of his people... May the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Wow, that was a shock. Why did it happen? Well, Jeremiah prophesied, Daniel prayed, and God moved by his spirit. God said it in his word. Someone claimed the promise of God's word and prayed. And God did it. Oh, I'm sure the political analysts had another solution and other explanation. And that same year, the first party of exiles made their way back home, returned to Zion with rejoicing. But Daniel's prayer, in fact, was heard immediately. As soon as he began to pray, it's a lovely picture, I think. You know, as God's people begin to pray, heaven takes notice. Strange thing, isn't it? You, you think, how's that possible? Well, I discovered the other day we were with connected internet and everything on, on cable television. I discovered that the guys there know when we're on the thing and they can actually plug into us directly among all the thousands of people. Kind of weird, really, but here's an, a more amazing thing that when God's people intercede and pray, just one, heaven hears. Look what it says, verse 22 in chapter 9. At the time of evening sacrifice, notice the significance. What evening sacrifice? It used to be held in the temple all those years ago, which is now demolished, but it's the same time, the same God, the same provision for sin. The angel Gabriel is sent to inform him, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. You say, it didn't happen for a few weeks, months, years, whatever. As soon as he began to pray, an answer was given which I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, therefore consider the message, understand the vision. And the answer to Daniel's prayer, and this is something I want to conclude with saying, is this, that when we pray and when we intercede, the effects are seen far beyond anything we even imagine or think. What Daniel prayed, the effects of his prayer were seen down through the centuries. 
Now, we certainly don't have time to discuss the rest of this chapter, which is one of the most controversial chapters in prophecy in the whole Bible. I have no desire to confuse those who are not familiar with it or fall out with some of those who are. But let me just highlight the future fulfillment. Whatever our interpretation of this passage, which is all to do with the number 7 and 70 and the 70 times 7 and the 62 times 7 and so on, what Daniel sees looks to the future. Daniel is praying about the exiles returning to Jerusalem. God is more concerned about the spiritual return of exiles from throughout the world. And so the picture here is that sin will be atoned for. Verse 24. This will happen when the anointed one, the Messiah, will be cut off. And he will confirm a covenant with many people, a new covenant, a new agreement. And all of this looks forward to the time of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, who is cut off for the sin of his people, who identifies with us in our sin so that we might be reconciled and receive God's mercy. And the future promise is there will be everlasting righteousness and an end to war. Now, when you read this newspaper and you read that what's happening in Iraq and what's happening in the war, do you think it's all out of control? What's going to happen ultimately? I don't know what will happen in this world, but I tell you this, the time will come when there will be everlasting righteousness and there will be an end to war forever. And it is against that conviction that we pray. So as we hold in one hand the promises of God's word and in the other hand we hold our newspapers, what do we do? Sit and wait for it all to happen? No, we pray. We pray for its fulfilment against that background and context. So, for example, the Apostle Paul urges Timothy when he prays to pray for the salvation of people. 1 Timothy 2, 1-6 I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Now what are you going to pray for? For kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. What is he saying? He says, pray for those in authority, pray for conducive circumstances, so that the gospel may go out, so that people may be reconciled to God as God longs and intends, because there is only one God and mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's how you pray for the world situation. What else do we pray for? Let me just mention some things. And John already prayed for many of them. We pray for God's name to be hallowed in the world when we hear it used as a blasphemy. And God blamed for things. We pray for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for the judging and refining and reviving of the church of Christ as we already sang. 1 Peter 4, 17. It is time for judgment to begin with the people of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not believe the gospel? We need to pray for workers, for the harvest field, for the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, so the gospel may go out. We pray for the gospel to be preached as a testimony to all people groups, for our Lord said, then the end will come. And so ultimately we pray with God's people down the centuries for the return of Christ. We pray, Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Enough things to pray for there? That is the context in which we pray. That is what we pray for. 
question is, are we willing to count the cost? Are we willing to be those who pray? Those who stand in the gap? Are we willing to be like Daniel? Because we know far more than Daniel ever only dimly saw. And we have far more hope. Because all the promises that are left to be fulfilled in this book concern the final return of Christ. And the ultimate spread of the gospel throughout the world. That is the challenge of Daniel. Interceding with the Lord. We're going to sing a hymn.